I think this is the thing with the Supreme Court is the level of like learned helplessness. I don't think there's anything to be done about it. And it's true that every law that Biden passed will probably get reversed. But since there's nothing to do, let's just like not have a theory and not have a plan. And, and it's just like, are you seven? Welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Considering the Supreme Court's not in session, we've certainly been hearing an awful lot about them lately, mostly thanks to investigative journalists discovering Clarence Thomas's seemingly never-ending gravy train from conservative operatives. As people start paying more attention to what goes on with the justices outside of the court and start to question why they, unlike all the other courts, don't have any boundaries or guardrails or ethics rules to follow, I think it's important to take a step back and look back at the court as a whole. These are not people used to scrutiny, and yet the more they're scrutinized, the more questionable many of their decisions appear, both on and off the bench. To talk about this, today's pod is a candid conversation with Dahlia Lithwick, a regular contributor at MSNBC and senior editor at Slate, who has been writing about the Supreme Court and jurisprudence for over 20 years. Dahlia is also the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law and the Supreme Court, and her work has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to the New Yorker to the New Republic. A visiting professor at the University of Georgia Law School, the University of Virginia School of Law, and the Hebrew University Law School in Jerusalem, Dahlia was the first online journalist invited to the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press. A Stanford and Yale graduate, Dahlia has won a litany of journalism awards, has been featured in many literary anthologies, is the co-author of two books, and the author of her newest book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, lawyer, author, award-winning journalist, and one of the nation's foremost legal commentators, Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome back, Dahlia. So good to be with you, Lee. Oh, thanks for coming. I love how your mind works. And when it comes to the courts, I can't think of anyone I would rather speak to. So I sincerely appreciate you making the time. I want to point out that I'm wearing the tribute ponytail entirely as an act of sucking up and admiration. So. <laughs> I'm telling you, we all need to bring out our, our inner Betty Coopers and just get our hands dirty, right? It's like Barbenheimer in the best possible way. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, like, as I said in the introduction for this podcast, considering the Supreme Court is not in session right now, we've been talking a lot about them lately, thanks in most part to their questionable ethics actions and kind of attitudes of the justices themselves. But when the justices have been questioned about that, their general sentiment is that the public has no right to ask. Justice Alito has published in a bunch of like, it's not fair op-eds in the Wall Street Journal. Clarence Thomas is basically giving the country the middle finger as we learn about everything from his extraordinary vacations to his mother's house being paid for by conservative operatives. And when asked by Congress to come and have a talk about it, Chief Justice Roberts was like, eh, you know, I'll pass. So what's the nation who wants to have faith in our Supreme Court supposed to do with this information? Because based on the people I talk to and the general sentiment around the country, it feels understandable that a recent Gallup poll showed that only 25% of Americans would say they have great confidence in the Supreme Court. So what are your thoughts on that? A, a couple of things, and I think they're interconnected. One is we have done a really crap job of connecting up Supreme Court 
decisions that we hate, notably Dobbs, right, from last year, <laughs> notably Bruin, the gun case from last year, you know, the affirmative action decision this year, the loan uh, uh, forgiveness from this year. We've had two catastrophically bad terms at the Supreme Court, and people register that, right? Voters get that. And in fact, you know, we can talk about the ways in which Dobbs is just responsible for the slaughter of Republicans in, you know, one state after another. And so people get that. There's another thing that people get, which is the thing you just described, which is corruption is really super bad. And like if the judge in traffic court did what Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito did, they would be removed, right? If any politician, if the dog catcher did those things. So people get that too. So part of the problem we have on our side is linking up those two problems, because I think people are actually dialed up to 11 on both. And somehow it feels like we're still having two conversations. One about like, oh, look at the Supreme Court and what it's doing with doctrine. And oh, look at bad judicial behavior and the ways in which the justices say they're imperial. So the first thing I want to say to you is we need to do a better job of connecting them and saying, hey, you know why the Supreme Court keeps imposing by judicial fiat things that get 20 percent support at the polls like forced birth? It's the same reason that the Supreme Court is bought and sold, right? It's the same reason that a handful of oligarchs and billionaires who have interests before the court keep winning. And so I think the first thing I want to say is people get that. People understand corruption. And we have to make that connection really clear that the reason that the Supreme Court is so democracy suppressive is the same reason that the Supreme Court is bought and sold. And it's because there's a couple of justices who are in the pockets of a couple of millionaires. And that doesn't feel like it's a hard thing to do. I think the only other part of my answer that's really important is this is such an area in which the public gets it and our elected officials kind of don't. And it's taken a very, very hard time, with the exception of a handful of people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who've been banging on about this forever. It has taken a really long time for our political class to do anything other than say, hey, I'm a doormat. Roll over me again, like back up, beep, 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 <laughs> and roll over my head again. And so I think those two things, like the, the, the inability to make meaning, political meaning for voters who are furious at the Supreme Court, but can't connect those two stories, and the inability of our elected officials to talk about if we were to make meaning of this, what would we then do? I think it's just a like, I mean, wasted opportunity doesn't begin to describe it. People are furious. And then when they say, what can we do? What they hear is like eh, 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 crickets. Yeah. That was a terrible Honest cricket God. impression. I'm that sorry. Was an, it wasn't a good cricket impression, mm -hmm. but I don't know if mine would be much better. I have to be, you know, like it's not. <laughs> the point is, is that like, we can't just keep carrying on like, oh, this these crazy ethics don't really blend in with these crazy decisions. They're exactly the same. Yes. And if our politicians don't realize that and act on that and affect that, because that is their job to look you know, into the Supreme Court to be the check on the Supreme Court, then they're missing the point. I always say that if we don't run on court reform, we're missing the boat. I think that's essential. And you're talking about these representatives who actually are paying attention and have been paying attention for a long time, like someone like Sheldon Whitehouse. And 
People should understand that the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is run by Democratic Chair Dick Durbin, they just voted to advance the Supreme Court Ethics, Recusal, and Transparency Act, which is legislation introduced by Sheldon Whitehouse, which would create a code of conduct for the Supreme Court. And it would implement requirements around the disclosure of things like gifts and travel and income, as well as expanding when the justices should be disqualified from hearing a case, right? Like, Clarence Thomas should not be hearing a case on his own wife. This seems obvious, and yet he did, and he voted by himself to make sure no one would see what she had potentially done. So we shouldn't have that. This bill would also impose a system for people to file complaints with the court about any alleged violations of the ethics code and then create like a separate committee to hear those complaints that wasn't connected to the Supreme Court itself. The vote was, not surprisingly, 11 to 10 along party lines with every Republican on the committee voting against it. And the bill is sadly unlikely to pass in the full Senate because of the filibuster. They would need 60 votes, so we would need 10 Republicans to vote for it. And 10 Republicans have already shown us they have zero interest in doing that. So even if it did pass, it would also need approval from the GOP-controlled House, whose leaders have expressed absolutely no interest in even considering it because the courts are benefiting them and their policies right now. So what's your take on this? Uh, why can't we have nice things, Dahlia? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's again, let's like, you know, credit where it's due. The Judiciary Committee hearing on this was, I think, light years away from what we've seen in the past, where you actually had several members of the committee who were kind of ready to fight. And when you think about just the baseline here, like the baseline is have a code of ethics that applies to the entire rest of the Article Three judiciary in the country, have it apply to the nine justices. Like, it's insane. And I think part of what happened, I mean, first of all, that hearing was just a crack up because it just turned into like, rah, 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 you know, Ted Cruz saying, I guess you just want Brett Kavanaugh to be shot in the face. Like you're stirring up, you know, hatred for the justices and you're making them, un, you know, safe. And then at some point, Lindsey Graham, my favorite quote of the hearing was Lindsey Graham being like, I don't begrudge them these trips on the super yachts and the glacier martinis. I wish I could live that way myself. And it was like, holy hell, did you just say that? You did. Okay. But I think that the sort of general underlying problem is, again, you know, and there's really good polling on this. The American public doesn't know what it thinks about this, but it pretty much hates judicial corruption, like across the boards and among uh, Republicans. And Anat Shankar Osorio and I did a piece on this uh, the day of the hearing. We've huge majorities that say, actually, corruption is really bad. It's hinky. And I may or may not agree with what happened in Dobbs or the affirmative action case, but this is something that I feel really bad about. And so we have a huge opportunity, again, to have like what, what Anat calls sense making, you know, help people connect this to an action item. Here we have an action item. And again, it just so often feels that you have a handful of senators standing there alone with a whiteboard saying, like, here's where the money came from. Here's the guy, you know, at the who's got an amicus brief in the case that's, you know, we got the guy who interviewed Justice Alito in the Wall Street Journal, where he did that thing where he was like, under no set of facts, can anybody regulate the court? That guy's got a case coming before the court this fall. Like, it's so smelly. And people get that. And so why we can't just say, this is priority one. And, and this is maybe the last thing I will say about this, but it's so important. If we learn nothing at all, we need to learn 
that the Biden administration, which has knocked it out of the park passing legislation, is at the mercy of a six to three court. You know, is it the perpetual mercy? And we learned this with Obamacare and somehow didn't integrate it, that you can pass all the great progressive climate legislation in the world and infrastructure and, you know, everything and, and student loan forgiveness and the court can take it away. So how it is that we can just keep spiking the football about legislative victories without looking at what happened in June when the court just rewrote the Clean Water Act? It, the buck stops there, right? That's where it stops. Yeah, and that's not at all how our democracy was set up to work. I mean, if I could just make a comment on that Lindsey Graham thing. I mean, here's the thing. Like, this argument, like, oh, justices aren't allowed to have friends, right? Like this, you're not allowed to go on a trip. Or like, No, it doesn't really fly because all these people became friends with the justices after they sat on the Supreme Court. They were not friends before, right? And even if I can get my head around like, oh, my super rich friends want to take me on vacations, what can I do? Okay, I can get my head around that, sure. I mean, no, not if you're a Supreme Court justice, but I could get my head around it. My problem is, is that your friends don't pay for your mother's house. Your friends don't pay for your child's education. If someone paid for my child's private school education, I would owe them. There's no way I wouldn't owe them. So this isn't just vacations, right? This isn't just like little trips or Super Bowl rings or all these things that they shouldn't be getting anyway. This is far and above things that you know they are bought and paid for, sold people. And I also think that when we talk about these couple of Democrats standing there with their whiteboard going, yo, this is very obviously corruption. <laughs> this is, again, why we need to have people vote for more Democrats in every election. This is why we need to flip the House and hold the Senate, not just with 50 seats, but at least enough senators that are willing to suspend, if not abolish the filibuster to to pass things like court ethic legislation or voting rights or bodily autonomy, things that the absolute majority of the country, over 80% of the country wants. We all should have a, had enough of common sense legislation being blocked every single time by a party who benefits from things not being fair. And so maybe Congress hasn't stepped up to assert its power in the past, but it absolutely must do it now. And we must vote for legislators who are willing to do that. We need far more Sheldon White Houses out there. And I think people need to know that, that we cannot just carry on with this like, well, this is the norm and this is how we've always done it because norms have absolutely let us down, right? We saw it with Donald Trump, right? Like we saw that. Like now we need laws that say, oh, a president isn't allowed to do this. And if this court is gonna keep breaking laws, then we have to say, okay, well, these are norms, but now we need to actually have legislation that says you can't because these people have. Right. And, and I, I just want to say two things about what you just said. What you said is so profoundly true. And here's what's important. The justices can take all the stinking trips and, you know, glacier martinis and kill all the slaughter, the bears and the salmon till the cows come home. But they have to disclose it. And that's, that's the crack it. up that's here. It. The yeah. law says if you do all this crap, disclose it because that way at least the public knows, right? And then we can make our own judgments. So the injury here isn't just that they're bought and sold, like you just said. It's that they're <laughs> lying to us about it. And that's connected to the other point that I think is so important, which is then you get 
this complete rank BS. This is what Justice Alito said in his Wall Street Journal interview with his close personal friend uh, who's going to be arguing a case before him in a few weeks. He said, quote, I know this is a controversial view, but I'm going to say it. No provision in the Constitution gives them the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period, right? That's the separation of powers argument. No law that Congress writes can possibly bind to the Supreme Court. This is from Sam Alito, who sits in a seat that was created by an act of Congress in 1837. His whole seat was created by Congress. Congress regulates the court all the time. It gives jurisdiction, takes jurisdiction away, it sets pay. So the idea that Congress can't tell the court what to do is a complete Cinderella myth by a court that wants to be treated as though it is imperial, right, is untouchable. And so when you said the thing, it is so true that these multi-billionaires and millionaires, you know, fly them around and they put them up in resorts. And I guess they bought Clarence Thomas's camper that he parks in allegedly Walmart park parking lots. Like all of these gifts, part of the gifts is that they create the movies and the books and this cult of like perfection around the justices, they're trying to tell a story about Clarence Thomas as this like quasi messianic figure. And it's not coming from the ground up. This isn't RBG, right? This isn't like independent filmmakers. This is the same people that are in that Harlan Crow painting, the creepy painting. They're around the literally, fire. yeah, around the fire with the totem pole. But like these guys are building a myth of a Supreme Court that is untouchable. And I think it's really important, back to what we started with, that if you start from the presumption, well, Supreme Court, it's untouchable. I mean, A, not true. Constitutional history suggests otherwise. But B, these guys are pouring millions of dollars into manufacturing this myth that nobody can regulate the court. And I just think like that's self-interested to the point. It's not even like, oh, we want to pollute the waters. And so we'll like buy Clarence Thomas. That's like we want to give cover to Sam Alito when he says crap like that to the Wall Street Journal that like, oh, nobody can touch the court. Well, it's also questionable if Sam Alito's entire job is to rule on what the Constitution said or didn't say, and if something is constitutional or isn't constitutional, it's questionable that he thinks that the court has uh, no one, it doesn't answer to anyone, because he should read the Constitution, the thing he should know incredibly well, because it certainly is answerable to someone. But if the court's ethics make us doubt them, their rulings, as you said, aren't helping either, right? The general sentiment in the country is decidedly more liberal and more open-minded as the years go by, so our legislation has been reflecting that. But now we're dealing with a court, like you said, that's clearly the most conservative right-wing activist court we've ever had, just overturning our laws willy-nilly, right? Oh, well, we can't, we can now poison the water because the court says we can, even though our legislation says we can't. So obviously we were talking, the big grueling last year was Dobbs and the overturning of Roe, which shocked the entire country. The fallout is, is absolutely not going away, no matter how much the Republicans want it to. But the Dobbs decision also opened the door to reversing many other American civil liberties and freedoms that we as citizens are used to taking for granted. So I thought maybe we would sort of quickly walk through the last term, right? Like the Dobbs decision, the gun decision, those were all from the term before. But let's talk about the last term, the highlights, the big rulings, and really what those decisions tell us about where the court is and where they would like to be going if we aren't going to monitor them. 
I would say that the big takeaway, there are two big takeaways from the end of last term. One is it is no longer Clarence Thomas and Alito's world. It's back to being John Roberts' world. And in a significant way that had not occurred the year before when there were these, all the shocking 6-3 rulings you're describing, this term John Roberts firmly pumped the brakes and he got Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to go along with him. And so in some of the truly insane cases that we were very worried about um, coming into this term. So like that's Moore v. Harper, the, you know, independent state legislature theory that would have given legislatures, you know, unfettered uh, ability to change election laws. Court kicked that away. Court kicked away a really horrifying case uh, about the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, it did the right thing in a handful of cases, including maybe the most important was this um, Alabama uh, uh, racial gerrymandering case. That's John Roberts with his hand on the wheel, right? But then they did some horrifying things, as you suggested, right? They rewrote, literally rewrote the Clean Water Act to allow polluters to pollute did away with affirmative action in higher education, just completely scuppered President Biden's student uh, debt relief program, you know, with the stroke of a pen under a theory called the major questions doctrine that nobody knows what it means. It means because I say so. And so there were a lot of really, really bad decisions that kind of came dressed as moderate decisions. And I think it was easy post Dobbs to say, well, we didn't get a Dobbs this year. Therefore, the court is modulating itself. No, no, the court did some really, really bad things. And I would just say upcoming next term, we're going to have a case that does away with something called Chevron deference, which is deferring to agencies to interpret their own policies that basically will like just scuttle um, uh, agency uh, uh, rules for the foreseeable future. It's part of this larger plan to dismantle the administrative state as we know it. And there's a really awful case that I want to direct people to about whether somebody who's been adjudicated dangerous uh, in a domestic situation can still have a right to a gun. I mean, these are awful, awful cases, and the court has barely begun to pack its docket. So I, I think what my big, big answer to your like very narrow pointed question, Lee, is that like we're in a ton of trouble. <laughs> we are in a ton of trouble when Brett Kavanaugh is the median justice on the court, right? And we're investing all of our hopes and dreams in a guy who consistently, consistently votes with the far right wing of the court. And I think it goes back to your sort of structural question that you opened with. If we take the posture that like, oh, well, too bad, so sad. There's nothing we can do about the court because they're made of magic then we're going to have years and years and years of the same. Yeah. I mean, you look so sad. <laughs> I do. I am sad. I mean, it's very sad. And that's why I say, like, we have to run on court reform. Like, I look at the last, if, if people aren't familiar, the, this last uh, term was pretty historic. And Dahlia is entirely right. John Roberts was able to take back even some moderateness to the court. This does not make it what people say, which is a 3-3-3 three, three, three court. You know, there's three super conservatives and three moderates and three liberals. That is not at all the case. We have six absolute conservative activists justices who sometimes don't like the scrutiny on themselves. And I think that we should keep in mind that some of their decisions are being made because they're feeling the pressure from the public. And you go, oh, if they're feeling the pressure from the public, maybe we should put more pressure on them because that is what's happening here. Like 
that Alabama ruling was a big deal. And there are people, and just so people understand, that Alabama ruling was basically saying, hey, you've you've basically undervalued the black voters within this state. And they need to be able to vote for the candidate of their choice because they've been gerrymandered into oblivion and no black voter can ever get who they want as a um, a representative. So the Supreme Court, who, by the way, would love to not do this, said, even this is too much for us. And then it went back down to Alabama and the Alabama state legislature was like, eh, maybe we won't do this. And that's literally what's happening. They are deciding like, Maybe we won't. It's going to have to figure itself out again. Where are we at with that even? No, that's exactly right. They're quite literally, I mean, we're like back in Little Rock, right? This is like, we're just going to flout a court order that we needed two majority black districts. We're going to create one and create another that's a minority black district and call it a majority black district. They're in blatant violation of the court. And I think- But the hope would be that it would go back up to the Supreme Court and this Supreme Court, which really doesn't want black districts, would say, ah, this looks good enough and then they will rule more in their favor. So I just had a birthday, and as I got dressed for dinner, I found that I didn't quite fit into my dress. I mean, I fit into it, but if I was gonna sit for the entire evening, that waistband was gonna end up real tight. So I ended up wearing something I didn't really wanna wear, and it got me thinking about the struggle to find healthy and convenient snacks without all the sugar and junk. I eat well, but I work at a computer all day, and when I get peckish, I just eat whatever is in the snack closet, which isn't feeding my body or my brain which is why I have to switch my game up to Mosh bars all the time. Mosh is a protein bar made for your brain. It supports brain health with ingredients like lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s, but it also has 12 grams of protein, only 160 calories, and one gram of sugar. So if you're busy or constantly on the go like me, you need to try Mosh protein bars too. They're a guilt-free snack that both your brain and your body will want. If I'm being entirely candid, I never much liked protein bars. It was the texture, but I don't really find that with Mosh. I'm personally a big fan of their lemon and white chocolate one. The flavor is delicious and the texture isn't that weird protein bar texture that kind of leaves a film on your tongue. So don't settle for a mediocre snack when you can nourish your body and your mind and fuel it with what it needs to succeed. Whether you're at the gym or on the go or just living your best life, Mosh protein bars will keep your brain and your body fit, fueled, and feeling good. Maybe if I replace my tortilla chips with Mosh, I'll also get back into my clothes. So head to moshlife.com slash politicsgirl to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all of their delicious flavors. That's M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politicsgirl. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, then you might wanna check out Miracle Made bed sheets. I talk about Miracle Made sheets all the time because they're terrific. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics to make temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Their sheets are thermoregulating, so even my husband and I, who run completely different temperatures, can use the same sheets and get equally good results. Miracle sheets are also incredibly nice, but without the high price of other luxurious sheets. So don't put up with being uncomfortable. Get a better night's sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try them for yourself. If you order today, you'll save over 40%. And if you use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout, you'll also get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is also so confident in their product, they've backed it with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, they will give you a full refund. 
So upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that is trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. I'm so pleased to be talking about our next sponsor, Real Paper. If you listen to this show, you know I love environmental products. I wanna do my part and help the world as it struggles to live symbiotically with humans who I think we can all agree are a bit of a disaster. Like trees are important, so let's stop cutting them down to make toilet paper. Do you know that we cut down tens of thousands of trees a day just to supply America with toilet paper? Well, we do, which is why our family made the switch to Real Paper. Real is 100% bamboo, so they're using a plant that grows fast, can be harvested and regenerated, and doesn't impact entire ecosystems of forests. Plus, Real is the best kind of eco-friendly because it doesn't feel like you have to sacrifice something to help the earth. I take my toilet paper pretty seriously, so I was worried that this product might be better in theory than it was in practice. And then I got my first delivery. Real paper is shipped right to your door in plastic-free packaging, and you can have it on subscription so it comes exactly when you need it and you never have to worry about lugging it home from the store. Real is also partnered with One Tree Planted, so every box of Real you buy is funding reforestation efforts across the country. So while other toilet paper cuts down trees, Real is actively helping to replace them. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for a one-time purchase on their website. All orders will be delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl and sign up for a subscription using my code politicsgirl, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl and enter the promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. Let's make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real. It's paper for the planet. Today's pod is brought to you by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and lowers your bills all in one place. When you log into Rocket Money, they ask you what you would like help with. I chose cancel subscriptions, but you can also pick lower my bills, track my spending, create a budget, track your net worth, grow your savings, improve your credit score, or reduce your debt. Rocket Money can help you manage all of your finances in one place, even automatically categorizing your expenses so you can track your budget in real time and get alerts if anything looks off. I wanted it for subscriptions I'd forgotten about, and apparently I'm not alone. According to Rocket Money, over 80% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. So we're out here just wasting money and we don't even know it. Do you know how many subscriptions you have? Most Americans think they're spending about $80 a month when it's actually closer to 200. If you don't know exactly how much you're spending on subscriptions every month, you need Rocket Money. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. That's rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. Rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. I mean, I think that that everything we are seeing this year, and by the way, this includes last week's decision from the Fifth Circuit about medication abortion, the Mifepristone case, which the Supreme, it's not going to make a difference because the Supreme Court has stayed that. But the Fifth Circuit quite literally handed down an order saying like, oh, you know, the FDA improperly regulates the, the safest birth control drug there is. And one of the arguments was because, wait for it, it's an aesthetic injury 
to a physician to have to not uh, deliver a baby, aesthetic injury, like the feelings of the physician who is not prizing fetal life is more important than the health of the mother or the life of the mother. And what I what I'm trying to say is one of the things that happened when the court became the sort of laser focused singular 6-3 supermajority juggernaut you just described is that every crackpot in the world filed a lawsuit, right? And that's what this Mifepristone case is. That's, you know, that was what Alabama did. Alabama was just like, screw it. We're just not going to follow the Voting Rights Act. Make us. You know, that was Moore v. Harper, the North Carolina case where they're just like, meh, make us. And what the court is doing is saying, like, not every crackpot lawsuit in the world is going to win at the court, but a lot of them are. And I think in the Alabama case, you just described the state of Alabama is like, we're going to do it again because we think this time we can be the crackpot case that wins. But yeah, it is a huge mistake. And this is actually just a sort of nuanced legal point, but it's important to understand that the Supreme Court controls its own docket. It doesn't have to take cases. And the cases it chooses to take, right, absolutely then inform the conversation we have about what happened at the end of the term. So when the court takes that independent state legislature theory, no reason to take that case. When they take it and then they say, oh, wait, that's crazy. That's not a liberal decision. That's a status quo decision. When the court takes that Alabama case, the the redistricting case, and says, oh, wait, we're going to uphold the Voting Rights Act. That's not a change in the law. That's a status quo decision. And we keep making the mistake, Lucy Football, of putting that in the bucket of these are huge liberal wins. Not getting punched in the face is not a win. It's not a win. (laughs) No, it's not a win, Dahlia. And I think it goes back to that idea that like, they're not changing the position that they are super conservative and would prefer if we didn't have the Voting Rights Act and prefer if we didn't have gay marriage and prefer if we didn't have this. They're just doing it a little bit slower the way John Roberts actually wanted it, right? Like like you got your Barrett and Kavanaugh a little taken aback with the backlash to the Dobbs decision and a little taken aback to the midterm election results that followed. And so they might be willing to just move things a little slower than their personal agenda would want for the sake of appearances, right? And like you're saying, these are the people that get to choose what what cases are seen. You need four justices to decide what cases are seen. And the four justices you have can be one of the six... (laughs) conservative ones those three liberals are like could we see oh okay no could we how about if we could we write to write no so like they don't have any power the 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 liberal justice don't even have power to decide what cases are seen this is all coming from the conservative activist court right so for the sake of appearances which i think is where john roberts wants to be they're slowing things down a little or doing things that seem like oh they didn't punch us in the face and you're like no all they did was keep the status quo like that's not a big deal whereas i think the you know the Thomases and Alitos are kind of like, we will do what we want, try and stop us. And I ultimately wonder if it matters what approach this court takes, since it doesn't change the fact that it's a right-wing conservative activist court who's all in on moving the country backwards to where they think it should be, right? They all want the same thing, which is why the Federalist Society put them there in the first place. And they would, some of them would just prefer a little less scrutiny while they did it. Exactly right. This is right where we started, right? We started with this question of 
how have we got this split screen where like we're horrified about the corruption and the self-dealing and the billionaires who bring cases to the court and also horrified about the cases that come out but unable to connect them? What you just said connects them, right? Because who are the two outliers in both of these situations? Thomas and Alito, right? They're the ones who are taking the lavish gifts. They're the ones who are not disclosing it, right? Alito says, oh, I didn't disclose my flight on a private jet because I looked up, I found some statute. And if you define a private jet as a facility, which I do, then I didn't have to report it, right? Or I didn't have to report it because I took a seat that, you know, if I didn't take it, no one was going to take it, which is in fact not a way you or I should travel on planes. Um, because that's stealing a seat. So I just think we need to understand that Thomas and Alito in both of these categories are the outliers, right? They're the, my friend Leah Littman calls it the hashtag YOLO court, right? The only, you only live once, you know, just go over the cliff, Thelma and Louise, <laughs> grab it while you can. Well, and grab then- it while you can, because there's literally no one to stop them. They're saying exactly. you can't regulate us. You can't do anything about us. We'll take the gifts we want. We'll take the people we want. We'll see the court cases we want and try and stop me. That's literally where they're at. And guess what? It's working. And to boot, they're the two who make claims like, and any attempt to scrutinize us, any attempt to look at our, you know, private travel or any attempt to, you know, hold us to an ethical standard is an attack on the integrity of the institution. So here's the one thing that is the outlier. John Roberts generally goes in that other group, right? The I'm younger, I'm Brett Kavanaugh, I want people to love me. I'm Amy Coney Barrett, I'm going to be on the court for another 170 years, so I don't need to do it today, right? So we've got this moderate camp, and John Roberts generally rolls with them. And as you said, that doesn't make them liberal, it doesn't even make them moderate, it just makes them not crazy. But here's the thing that I think is the most important takeaway. For all the hagiography around John Roberts and what a centrist he is and what a moderate he is and how careful he is about his reputation and the institution of the court that's polling in the 30s, John Roberts is the guy, you said this at the beginning, who writes the letter to Congress when they say, we would like you to just pop in for a second, just walk across the street and pop your head in and maybe talk to us a little bit about what's going on. And you will recall John Roberts was the one who was like, no. So I think before we say John Roberts, hero in control of the court, you know, reasonable, moderate guy, that FU that he gave to Congress was one of the most radical acts that I have ever seen in my life. And to not call it that, to say like, we're just going to shuffle along because John Roberts will always kind of modulate himself around public opinion. No, didn't happen. No. And that goes back to what I was saying. The bottom line is we keep breaking norms. Like the experts are out here saying that that letter you're talking about, the letter that Chief Justice Roberts sent to Congress telling them he wouldn't come and speak to them is actually one of the most important documents that came out of the last judicial term, despite the fact that it isn't a ruling or a dissent. Like, I get it. There's no hard and fast rule that says if Congress asks someone from the Supreme Court to come in and talk to them, they have to go. But if the chief legislative body from a country asks you to come and talk to them and you're the branch of the government that is supposed to be answerable to them, you shouldn't say no. Like, 
it doesn't seem like any other court in the history of our country would have been so disrespectful. So we can't be acting like Chief Justice Roberts is above board here, right? It's a bit more like he's like Justice Alito and Thomas, like he's looking down on Congress because he doesn't think he answers to them. He doesn't think they're co-equal and he's acting as if he stands above them and their rulings are acting the same. 100%. And I think that this kind of goes to that larger point that we're both trying to make, which is if John Roberts says, you know what, separation of powers, end of story, nobody gets to tell the court to do anything. Our answer has to be, I've said this on your show before, but I want to say it again. The only power the court has, it has neither the purse nor the sword. It has no power, right? Congress can turn off the lights tomorrow. They could turn off the lights. They could stop up the toilets. The only power they have is public legitimacy. So when we hear John Roberts, Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas say, like, you can't touch us. We can do whatever we want with impunity. And we say, yes, sir, hit me again. What we're doing is giving them public legitimacy. We're giving them the only power we have. And it's the thing we can take away, right? We can say, and you're seeing it in the in the polling, we don't like what you're doing and we don't like how you're doing it. And we don't like that you're doing it on the shadow docket late at night. And we don't like that you're overturning precedent. And we don't like that you're rewriting statutes. We can say those things. That's our power. And so the craziness here is that you formally have the weakest branch of government preening around like the emperor's new clothes like no but we're we're perfect and we're so good that nobody can scrutinize us and we are giving them that by choosing to be supine and that's the crazy thing it's like literally all we need to do is be like haha naked and that's our power that is our power we need to remember that the supreme court isn't in charge of our laws they are supposed to rule on the constitutionality of questions surrounding our laws as a body of justice, but they are not in charge, you know? They are not the final arbiters. We don't say, oh, we're going to elect these 435 House representatives and 100 senators, but really at the end of the day, we're going to give six unelected people control over our entire government. That's not how it's supposed to work. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be our right as citizens to challenge it and our right as citizens to ask our representatives to do that for us. I think as we watch this conservative court continue to cherry pick our constitution, to take pieces out of it, to fix their, you know, fix it and fit into their own agenda and then to make their rulings based on that. And then we see our liberal justices clearly spelling out that they shouldn't be doing that in their dissents. The new approach seems to be for the conservative part of the court to delegitimize the dissent itself, to set it up for the public, like, listen, there's only one way to interpret the Constitution. We know what it is. We, the six Republican justices, know what it is. And if you don't agree, then obviously you, our colleague, are incorrect. Justice Jackson has been doing an incredible job holding people accountable, holding her colleagues accountable. Her dissents are detailed. They're incredible. She's apparently actually read the Constitution that she's commenting on. And she's not cherry picking it. She's saying, no, it actually says this. And you can see that through precedent here. And here's how it goes. And there's saying, no, we're just going to take these four words and say that it means this. And she's saying, here's the entire sentence, and it means this. And their response isn't to be like, perhaps we're wrong. Their response is to be like, her dissent has no merit. And I find that is a problem. 
It, it, no, I think it's worse than that it has no merit. It's exactly what you just said. John Roberts, in addition to the audacity of the letter you and I have now both invoked, where he says, like, <laughs> not, not coming to testify, the audacity of his opinion in the loan forgiveness, the student debt forgiveness case, where he says that for the dissenters to have the temerity to say that they just <laughs> struck down a, a, a lawful enactment and they did it because some do- major questions doctrine, we don't know, blada, blada, controls. And for Justice Kagan to have the temerity to say this harms the legitimacy of the court, which, by the way, that was the dissent in Dobbs, right? The dissent in Dobbs was, you are killing this court. And John Roberts' response to that is, you can't say that because now, right, I'm rubber, you're glue. You're delegitimizing the court, not me. And so the audacity of that stacked on top of that letter is so important to highlight because what he's saying is, and we hear this all the time from Justice Alito, from Justice Thomas, that if you dare criticize this six justice supermajority, not only are you trying to bring the court tumbling down, but you are trying to endanger the lives of the justices themselves, right? And that's what that hearing was, the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, clearly you want there to be a tax on the justices. And Justice Alito, after Dobbs, literally, you know, made the case that somebody w- would be assassinated because of that. And I just want to connect that up to last week's death threats against Judge Chutkin in the Jack Smith um, lawsuit in DC against the grand jurors in Georgia, right? Who were doxxed and who were outed. Think about the fact that when actual civil servants, including, you know, Ruby, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss do their jobs, Judge Chutkin is doing her job. That grand jury did their civic duty and they're getting death threats. And the justices who have marshals, who had fencing around the court, who control every aspect of who can come in the building and that you can't have cameras in there and we blah, blah, blah. And they're invoking the idea that their lives are in danger and that that hypocrisy of having no real regard for the lives of jurists in a case down the street who literally they arrested somebody who wanted to kill her. But to delegitimize the court is to mean that Justice Alito can't move safely through the world. The double standard in operation here is unbelievable. And for people who call for actual violence, right? Donald Trump is making actual threats against the lieutenant governor of Georgia. And that's just brushed off by the Lindsey Grahams of the world, right? So what? But when Lindsey Graham hears that they want to have an ethics code at the court, God forbid, the first place he goes to is that's because he wants the justices to die. I think it goes back to our original point, which is that this idea that the justices stand above all of us, they deserve more protection, more respect, more freedom, more presence, more gifts, more, you know, everything. And it kind of returns us back to what America was created to remove ourselves from, which is a monarchy. Like at this point, these six people are what? Kings? They're just sitting up there saying, this is the law and this is how it's be. And don't ask me any questions. And don't, that is not how our country was set up to rule. And I think the success of our democracy and our rule of law depends 
on ordinary people's willingness to believe in our institutions, to abide by our court rules. Donald Trump and the Republicans have been taking shot after shot at our faith in our elections, in the FBI, in law enforcement, and we can see that it hurt our country. But if people lose confidence in our courts, how long until they start rejecting decisions? I find it in so fascinating that the first person to reject a Supreme Court decision was the Republican state of Alabama, because I'm like, do you know how quickly Democratic states could be like, yeah, we just don't abide by your Dobbs decision anymore. Like, we will fall apart if that, if the court's reputation is so sullied, as the liberal justices keep pointing out, we will fall apart because at the end of the day, I think we need to acknowledge that public faith in the judiciary matters. And right now, I'm not sure if we have it. And if we want to have a civil society that functions under the rule of law, we need to believe that justices, particularly our Supreme Court justices, are ruling impartially and based on their decisions on the bench, based on their actions off the bench, I think less and less people are buying what they're selling. So what do you think, aside from us getting that strict scrutiny, getting that attention on them, saying we do not believe you, saying we are not happy with this, that kind of attention focused on them. What else do you think we can be asking for or doing? I'm so I'm so glad you make this last point because it's so important. Those of us and folks in the legal academy who've been criticizing the rulings at the court keep getting flack for just hating democracy and hating the court. And and the opposite is true, right? We love democracy. We love the court. We believe that you cannot have a constitutional democracy or the rule of law without courts. And so when we fight to have a court that is, in fact, legitimate, it's not because, you know, we hate the courts. It's not even because we hate Dobbs. It's that what we are saying is the court has to live up to this aspiration, rarely met, by the way, through constitutional history, to do equal justice under the law, right, to protect rights and dignity. That's their job. And and believe it or not, just to go back to the ethics rules for one quick second, the ethics rules that all the other judges have to abide by, don't say, don't take bribes. They say, avoid the appearance of impropriety, not impropriety. Don't look like you're in the tank for one side. Why? Exactly for what you just said, because legitimacy, as we've both said, is everything, right? Belief in the court is everything. So that's the rule. The rule isn't, eh, do I think I should take this flight and go salmon fishing? The rule is, no, because it looks hinky and every one of us knows that. And to fail to do that is to fail to protect the integrity and the dignity of the court, right? So that's what we're all fighting for. We're not fighting because we hate these six justices. Two, and this is the answer to your question, this is not a thing that we can put on pause and wake up for the last two weeks in June and be like, I'm affronted. What did they just do? Huh? Like, this is a every day of the year, 24-7, 365 days of the year issue. And a lot of that has to do with the way we cover the court, right? We cover it as though it's this like jack in the box and it's like do, 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 do. And then like two weeks in June, it's a story. We have to do a better job every minute of every day. And I'm just mindful folks should just be recalling that there's a child who is, you know, is now a mommy and starting what, seventh grade uh, because she couldn't get an abortion last week. So like, let's just- After she was raped in her front yard, by the way. Raped by a stranger in her front yard, right? And and that child is starting school as as you and I are, are recording. So like, let's be really mindful that every day of the year we are living with the fallout. It might not affect us, 
but it's affecting the whole country. Clean Water Act being eviscerated is going to affect every single one of us. So I, I want to just say this can't be a thing that we say, you know, this is a seventh tier or a 13th tier issue, but there's going to be seven minutes in June when I am pissed off. This has to be a thing that we think about every day of the year and that we work toward, we think about, you know, there are meaningful bills out there, Lee, to end, uh, you know, to have term limits, to end lifetime appointments, meaningful bills that would change the jurisdiction, meaningful legislation to add seats to the court, which has happened many times in history, not magic either. So we have to stop saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to, like I said before, lie here in the road and let the truck back over me again. Like we have to absolutely invest in the proposition that we have skin in this game. And I don't, I think that I, just to end sort of where I began, I actually think people get that. Like people you and I talk to understand that. I think that we need leadership, political leadership to just bang this point home that to do nothing is to allow it to continue. And then everything else we're doing almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Congress needs to do their job and act as a check. That's why things like Senator Whitehouse's bill are so essential. And it's so obvious how destructive it is that Republicans even refuse to consider it because they are counting on the courts to do their bidding because they cannot win seats on their legislation or their plans or their bills. So they are counting on the courts to make us live in a conservative country because that's what they would prefer. But it's not the will of the people. So the people have to be the ones that stand up and say, nah. Not anymore. Not on our watch. I think that's I think that's 100% the point. And I also think we're in a really amazing moment in American history where for the first time, I would almost say since the Warren Court era, we have an opportunity to message the court. We have an opportunity to, again, my friend Anat Shankar Osorio says, we can be sense-making around this because a lot of people don't know how they feel. And there are very few issues in this partisan moment where people don't know how they feel. They don't know. Nobody's told them what to think yet. You know, and they haven't quite figured it out. The court is just such fertile ground for making sense and meaning. And so to fail to sort of step into this conversation that you and I are having right now, and thank God we're not having it for the last two weeks in June, like we need to be having this conversation in January and in March. But I think to fail to give people sort of, as you said, solutions and a rubric to think about it is to sort of fail to step into this amazing opportunity where the public wants to understand, like, how is this happening? And how does this connect up to democracy itself? I mean, that's what we have to spend the next year doing, because that's going to be on the ballot in 2024. Yeah, it will be. So you'll have to come back in March so we can talk all about this again. (laughs) (laughs) I am here for making meaning anytime you want me. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dahlia. I know things are out of balance with the court. We know that things aren't right. But as a country, I think it's really important that we start taking a really serious look at it so we can decide what we are going to do to fix it. Complaining is just not a solution. Complaining is not a solution. And like I said, I think we have boundless power. This is not a threat to hurt anyone. We have boundless power to make institutional change. And it's really, really doable. It's shockingly doable. 
this just requires us to like shift the lens a tiny bit and say, oh, the court isn't in fact monarchic. It's not the king. Oh, that's all I need to do. Boom. The world is your oyster. Perfect. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks for wearing your high pony. And I'll see you in March. It's great to see you. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, Talia. So that was Dahlia Lithwick reminding us that despite how frustrated we might be with the court, we're actually at an amazing moment in American history where for the first time in decades, we have the opportunity to message for the court. If we are not happy, we need to insist on change. That these justices are not imperial and their ethics and rulings are intrinsically connected. Corrupt people make corrupt rulings. And most of the country can agree that we hate corruption. According to Dahlia, true institutional change is not only possible, it's shockingly doable. But we won't change anything if we don't make the court a first tier issue. At the end of the day, nothing we do will matter if they can just overturn it on a whim. I want to thank Dahlia for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.